welcome friends and neighbors, good government types, political junkies, and folks just checking us out. I'm your host, Bob Orr, the old retired judge turned podcaster, welcoming you to the Christmas edition of The Battle for NC-14. Here's hoping the candidates and would-be candidates for the race are getting final Christmas shopping done and setting aside the tiresome challenges of running for Congress. This is the season of giving and sharing, family and friends, and remembering the faith-based reason for celebrating Christmas. This week, we'll be interviewing Jay Carey, a retired Army sergeant running in the Democratic primary. I'm confident you'll enjoy hearing Jay's story and reasons for running. Finally, with a tip of the hat and apology to Clement Moore, author of the poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," I've penned my version of this Christmas classic with a slightly tongue-in-cheek rendition keyed to the battle for NC-14. So, here goes. "'Twas the season of Christmas in 2021, and the candidates for Congress weren't having much fun. The campaigns were launched and filing dates set. Who was in, who was out, was a pretty sure bet. In hopes of a victory in the election to come, and beating young Cawthorn would really be fun. The Republican field seemed definitively set, but Cawthorn's success seemed a pretty safe bet. The Democratic challengers were an interesting mix, with passion and fire, the problems they had fixed. When out in the district there arose such a clatter, Congressman Cawthorn tweeted, the 14th didn't matter. To heck with the voters who helped him get elected. That gaggle of people are hereby rejected. He's off to a new district that's even more redder, so his re-election chances would get even better. The challenger's strategies just flew out the door, along with the hopes of House Speaker Tim Moore. The chaos continued. What can you say? The primary schedule got moved to late May. Filing begins sometime in the spring with a primary schedule. Not a sure thing. So who knows what challengers will jump into the race, or if the maps get redrawn at a painfully slow pace. Old Santa is coming, but he may be dismayed at the changing map boundaries and the plans that were made. But more rapid than eagles, November will come, and the race for the 14th will be over and won. So, on Jasmine, on Eric, on Katie and Jay, the candidates fly on in the race they will stay. Go Bo and go Brooker. I think he's still in. Go David, who will try for a libertarian win. On Wendy, on Rod, and Bruce raising hell about Cawthorn's chosen candidate, the ubiquitous Michelle. On Chuck, and on Ken, and Matthew's in too. Who else will jump in before filing is through? The race to the finish has only begun, and the winning campaign has yet to be run. We'll know next December when Santa and his sleigh show up in the 14th and send someone away to Washington, D.C. and a congressional seat who will be the one candidate that no one can beat. No one knows the answer, but interest is keen. Keep tuned to the battle for NC-14. 
Okay, that's my poetic contribution to the podcast in Christmas. Now, let's get on to the interview with Jay Carey. Well, Jay Carey, welcome to the Battle for NC-14. I'm delighted to talk with you here in the week before Christmas. Tell us about yourself. Well, I was raised in a working middle-class family. When I turned 18, I joined the military. I went into the Army. Did a little over 20 years. I retired as a sergeant first class back in 2012. Deployed multiple combat uh, zones, Desert Storm, Iraq, Afghanistan. During my work in Iraq, I received a Bronze Star. Uh, afterwards, I, uh, like I said, I retired in 2012. I worked in a utility department for a couple years down in Texas. Then uh, I met my wife, my now wife, Leslie. Um, together, we have four boys ranging from 24 to 2, and we live in Hendersonville now, and we really enjoy it. So now how long have you been uh, in Hendersonville in western North Carolina? About three and a half years. You know, it was, it was something that I grew up dreaming about living where I live now, out in the woods, uh, just nothing but trees, can't see the neighbors, um, dogs run free, the whole thing. It's wonderful, <laughs> and I totally enjoy it. Yeah, so how would you pick western North Carolina? It was a uh, elimination. We there we were, could move anywhere in the in the country that we wanted to. Me being retired and on disability, my wife having her own business, but we looked at two places. We looked at Asheville because coming from Austin, it was people were like, "Oh, it's like a Austin was twenty years ago." <laughs> right. And then we looked at Rhode yeah. Island, where I was born. Rhode Island was that's uh, the taxes are, are unbelievable. Cost of living is unbelievable. So we came up here. We looked at Asheville. Prices were too expensive. We, we weren't willing to pay what they wanted for homes there. And uh, I was attracted to Hendersonville. My, uh, and I, we found this lovely home. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's what really, I mean, it, the, the, the school systems brought us here, the cost of living, and just the, just the environment. We love it. And so here you are, a retiree from the military and small children, and yet, Something precipitated your interest in running for Congress, which is not an easy, easy task. Uh, what happened? What what got you involved? Well, contrary to uh, most others, uh, it was not Madison Cawthorn. It was not the insurrection. I'd been thinking about public office for years. Part of it is because of all the experience that I've I've had in the military, working around the country, working around the world. While I was in Iraq, I helped do community. I helped rebuild communities. I was on a small, I was in charge of a small military transition team and we worked with locals and we helped them to secure and rebuild and to empower them to rebuild their, their areas. And I thought that was, um, something that, that uh, we needed, we needed leadership. We need strong leadership in the government, not just, I mean, we do need leadership here in Western North Carolina, but overall, because that's why I was seeking a federal office. Cause I felt like my ideas, my beliefs, my ability to lead would be more effective at a federal level. And I've, you know, I've watched uh, our government become what more and more uh, disassociated from the average person, from the working class. And we need working class people in Congress. And so in the context of your campaign, has that been your focus, uh, the working class issues? And, and, and what would be those issues that, that you're advocating for? Well, there's, you know, I've had my platform out from this since the beginning when I declared back in April. 
And it is focused on working class because working class is the class that we support this country. We're the most taken advantage of. Uh, we've been convinced that we are the ones that have to give the most as opposed to the upper, the, the, the super rich, central millionaires and the billionaires and stuff. Um, I believe that everything is interconnected. I don't have – people ask me, oh, what's your top two or top three? I said Every, everything. You know, we're not a single double or triple issue country. We're multiple issues that are all interconnected. My base, the glue that holds everything together is broadband. We've received money recently for broadband. I am not understanding how that's going to overcome House Bill 129, which does not allow private or uh, municipalities or cities or towns to compete directly with private industry, which is AT&T, Morris, things like that. So I don't know how this money is going to be used to overcome that. I haven't um, – I don't need help. Like most people, they don't really need help paying their bill. Like I have a $10 internet bill. I have 10 megabyte service. Right. I'd love to have a little bit faster service. You know, I can pay my $10 bill. I don't need that. So, and going out through this entire district, the biggest complaint, the biggest problem is broadband because broadband leads to better health care accessibility, better education accessibility, better chance at building a stronger economy, small businesses in their homes, things like that, that they can't even do right now. There's places that have no internet whatsoever. And all these things, equality, equity, um, you know, the, these are all interconnected. These all depend on each other. And that glue is that broadband access. So I wait, I wait anxiously for that change. I hope that change starts taking effect before the November election so I, I can see how we're actually uh, working through those issues. But one thing that I believe in strongly is that we can't allow any state, regardless of what state it is, to restrict people, the average person, from affordable health care, education opportunities, employment, or broadband. So a lot of what I talk about is ways of the federal government providing these services that go around these, these state governments, like North Carolina. The minimum, the minimum wage is controlled by the state. A, a county, a city, they can't raise their minimum wage requirement independently. The state does it. And it's primarily red states that are the issue, where they're not providing for their people. No Medicaid expansion. So what do we do? Well, I believe that the goal is Medicare for all. But how do we get there? We do a federally funded single-payer single option to bridge that gap. And then we work as people understand how good that is and that it's not breaking the bank on taxation and things like that, that we were able to incorporate Medicare for all. That's how we, we work around these local governments that aren't willing to help their people. Well, one of, one of the ironies, the, the Republican party has historically said, well, you know, you rely on local government. They're the closest to the people. Uh, and yet I, I hear you saying, your concern is that local and state government isn't responding to the people, and if if they're not going to do it, then it has to be the federal government? When there's a failure in government at any level to help the people, especially the people in those underserved communities, the ones that are hurting the most, if they are not addressing those issues, then it's the next higher government's responsibility to address those issues. Well, I, I want to go back just for a second to your military service and and ask, you know, sort of what lessons 
can you translate from your 20 years uh, in the military to both the campaign context, but also the governance context? What, 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 are, the, what are the things you learned in the military that you're bringing with you? Accountability, personal accountability, and holding other people accountable for their actions, not allowing people to say and do and act in ways that is detrimental to our government and to our country overall. I believe we have a serious lack of accountability across the entire government, not just one party. Re uh, being reliable, being disciplined, and being able to instill and lead people, not just telling them what to do, because that's not leadership, but showing them through example, inspiring them to do better. That's, that's really important. We just, I just don't see that in our government very often anymore, especially now within the House of Representatives and Congress as a whole because of what's been happening, allowing one person to control our entire government, basically an entire country, you know, through his whims. We can't allow that. They need to be held accountable. And if Republicans are doing or saying things that are contrary to, to good governance and to, to helping people to succeed in our country – and Democrats aren't saying anything, then acquiescence is liability. You're wrong. You need to speak up. You need to hold them accountable. It's one of the big things I learned was accountability and discipline and, and being willing to, to recognize and admit when you're wrong. And that's a huge thing. And that's, that's what we, our party, our government needs more strong leadership. And, and so in that context, uh, and, and this is a little bit of a overstatement, but veterans have tended, I think, to run as Republicans. And I think among the Democrat candidates who have at least announced for the 14th, with Josh Remillard now moving to the 13th, you're the only veteran uh, in the Democratic primary? Yes. And... And so I guess one of my questions, and I think people would be interested in knowing, how did you choose the Democrat Party over well, the Republican Party? I was a Republican for a good majority of my, of my um, early life, I guess you can say, my early voting life while I was in the military. And when George W. ran, I was – I could not vote. I could not vote for him. I could not the, – the, the direction that – I could see the direction the Republican Party was taking. I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. I more I, I believe the beliefs that I share are are shared with the Democratic Party. What they believe, their their basic beliefs. A little bit more to the left. I'm not a moderate, not a centrist, not a blue dog. I am more, you know, lean more progressive because we need progress. We're not somebody that's progressive isn't this crazy far-left democratic socialist. That's not what a progressive is. That's a far, far-left ideal. People that we want to help the average person. And we want to help the average person through using government funds that we have. We have plenty of government funds. I did acquisition for a while in the military. I understand how the military wastes money. And we want an overall... We want to improve the life for everybody. By improving the middle class, you improve the entire economy. Or the working class, you improve the entire economic outlook of the country. So tr transitioning to 
talking about the campaign. You've been in the race since April. Uh, there's uh, like four or five other Democrats uh, who have announced that they're running. And with filing extended, could be more, we don't know. Uh, and, and so it, it, you've, you know, you've lived here three and a half years and, and sort of a different experience base than the other candidates, certainly. So how are you finding your ability to connect with the people of Western North Carolina, to connect with people in the Democrat primary that you have to convince to get, get past that first hurdle? I, I won't say it's easy because definitely, definitely because of the size of our, of our uh, district, but it's been great. I mean, I share a lot of, I have a lot in common with the, with the average, I guess you could say the average person here in, in the district. We share a lot of the same values. My campaign is value-based. That won't change. And I share a lot of the same values, whether it's mountain values or it's, you know, however you want to word it. I just, I, we believe in the same things. Um, and what's been great too is that connecting with that unaffiliated voter. And I am connecting with that unaffiliated voter. Uh, it does help that I have my military background. They do, um, they have quite a bit of respect for that. Another thing is, though, is that, uh, you know, it's people, I, I, I feel that people underestimate the rural community. They believe that they are moderate, they're this, like even Democrats, they're very moderate and they don't want a lot of change and they don't want this and that. It's not true. Everybody that I talk to, even if it's Republicans out in these rural areas, they all want the same thing. They want affordable health care, accessible health care, good education. They want their environment to be stabilized and saved because we're not going to kill the earth. We're not going to destroy the earth. The earth's just going to get rid of us. We're not going to be able to, to live on it anymore. They want their children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren to have the same environment that they lived in. They want better opportunities for employment and for uh, economic growth. We all want that stuff. And my ideas, they connect very well. These people are like, yes, that, that is a great idea. How do we, then the biggest thing is how do we pay for it? Well, equitable taxation of the rich, establishing a wealth tax, uh, relooking at this, this out-of-control military budget, which is insane that it's grown over $30 billion now that we're not even fighting any wars. And I know how to look at that. I know, I understand reading the budget, what these, these different things are. I've experienced, I've been there. I've developed equipment that we never used. You know, I helped, that's, that, that, that has never been put into, into play. We've spent billions of dollars on programs that, did, that went nowhere. And I know how to cut that stuff out and recapture that money and put it into those social programs that we need. Look at the child tax credit. Next January or this coming January, because it has been allowed to expire, over 30 million people are going to fall back into poverty. A number of whom live in western North Carolina. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We benefit from it. We have three children. It was a huge part of our income. It became a very important part of our income. It's, it's gone because of one person, one Democrat. And that's where I, when I, I cringe when I hear people say, vote blue no matter who. No, 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 vote blue, but it matters who. All right. So and, and I tell you, I, I have no problem 
relating with the people of Western North Carolina. I've been into every single county multiple times, sat down with the average person at a cafe, at a bar, with the Democrat. I mean, you know, the Democratic Party people are always more receptive, of course. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's hard conversations that you have to be willing to have. And people are willing to have them. They want, to, they want their voices heard. That's the other thing is I'm not bringing my voice to, to Congress. I'm bringing their voice to Congress. I'm, a, I'm a, a conduit. You know, I'm not an expert in any of these areas. My expertise lies in leadership, leadership being able to listen, to understand, to process, to assemble a team that will help get these things done, help accomplish our missions. Because I want to affect change immediately. And I know there are things within that, that I believe in and that I want and that the people of Western North Carolina want that we can affect, we can change immediately once in Congress. So, so two major things have happened from a campaign context. Uh, first is the incumbent Republican, Madison Cawthorn, surprisingly announced he wasn't going to run in the 14th and was going to run in the 13th, although Rumors now have it that if they redraw the districts, you know, maybe he comes back. So who knows? Uh, uh, you know, the other is that the primary was supposed to be March 8th. It's been pushed back uh, to mid-May. Your, your thoughts on both of those fairly uh, significant incidents uh, in, in the context of the campaign? Sure. Well, let's address the Madison Cawthorn. My campaign was never focused on a, on a person. It was fo- focused on the issues, okay? Uh, I did not he, – he was not the, the – uh, he was not what I was running for. I was not running against someone. I was always running for, and I was running for Western North Carolina. The other thing, it, it def- definitely doesn't hurt to have a little bit more time to get out there and speak with people, especially when as the weather warms up, um, we – you know, gaining Wataga with Boone and – App State has been great. I've been up there a couple times, talked to students. They're very, very uh, motivated. Uh, we're really happy. I'm happy that Watauga is in our district, that's for sure. Most Republicans probably aren't, but I'm very, very happy. Um, and so I think it's great. I mean, it it's, gives us more time, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, you know, one of the, one of the challenges, of course, is the geographical expanse of the district. You know, Murphy to Boone is no short drive, and there's no easy way to do it. 746,000 plus or minus people live here. Um, Your initial pool of voters, Democrats voting in the primary and unaffiliated that choose to, it's hard to reach them on a one-on-one basis. So everybody has been dialing for dollars, trying to generate funding. Has that been a big challenge for you, um, you know, not, not having ind- independent wealth uh, to draw on? Yes, independent wealth would be great, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Um, I always wanted to be have old money. But, yeah. Yes, having uh, run a nonprofit for years would yeah. have been great, too. Yeah. That would definitely would have primed me for this type of thing. This is yeah. my first run. Yeah. It has been a challenge, but it's one that I've welcomed. I've enjoyed. I love getting to talk to people. Um, for the most part... If they answer the phone, they're willing to talk, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, but it definitely is a. It's it's been a learning experience, and really, honestly, to me, getting on the ground and meeting with people has been the biggest payoff 
even if it's not monetary, it's still, I mean, I, I know that when I talk to Mr. John Smith here, that face to face, he's going to remember who I am. Right? And that shows them the respect by going out there and meeting with them on the ground. Any particular campaign experiences here in the first few months that sort of jump out that years from now when, you're, when your kids are, are old and you're sitting around telling them about the, this first experience, anything sort of jumps out? One interesting thing is that, um, you know, you, you don't knock on doors blindly. You don't just go find an area and just start knocking on every single door. You should have a list so that you're actually talking to people that want to talk to you or at least a little bit receptive. And uh, I went off the list that was provided to me <laughs> by with one door, and that was the first door I had slammed in my face. It was great. <laughs> um, you know, I was out in uh, I was out in uh, Cherokee County, uh, Murphy for their Fourth uh, of July, and I was out with the uh, they had the Democratic Party had a, a small booth set up, and what was eye opening was. How many people would come up and they would just whisper, like, I'm a Democrat, but don't tell anybody. Don't, I don't want people to know. Because they faced violence from Republicans for being Democrats in that region. And that was my – because I've always lived in, you know, Places that weren't that hyper polarized, even Hendersonville, even though it's it's not, it's actually fairly blue. Henderson County is is right. red, but you know I've never lived in an area where I felt to be at, at you know a risk of of physical harm because of my because of the party that I'm affiliated with, where I lived. These people were scared, and I was like, this is not how it should be. I respect. Everyone, regardless of what party they are, we need to at least two parties. I'd love to see three or four, honestly. But, you know, it's things have changed so much. And is this, I don't believe it's sustainable. I mean, change is inevitable. Things cycle through. The Army taught me that, you know. Um, but what we're dealing with right now with this hyper-partisanship has to stop. Any suggestions? And I know it's it's like, well, how do we find peace in the Middle East between Palestine and uh, the Israelis? Uh, I mean, it's not an not an easy easy lift. But any thoughts or suggestions on how we regain a degree of civility? Continue to pass legislation that helps everyone, that benefits everybody. Those far right uh, conservatives that are, are borderline fascists, there's no talking, there's no, they, they're lost. Okay, they've been basically brainwashed. They're a part of a, a cult. And this is not, I don't say it lightly, this is, they, they've gotten that cult mentality. But for the majority of Republicans, there's, I see the backlash. They do not like what's going on. They do not want this, this hyper-partisanship, this far-right fascist attitude. I see the, I've seen it. It's even happening uh, with Madison Cawthorn in the 13th, that, that they're already pushing back at him very hard. Uh, and you've seen over and over how Trump-backed candidates are no longer the dominant candidate. And so we need to continue, Build Back Better's got to get passed. And we've got to continue to build on that and all the other legislation that we've done. It helps everybody regardless, because helping people 
doesn't have a political party. Period. All right? And let people on people are going to have to come back. Is what they're going to have to do on their own. You can it's like the, the it's like the shot, like the the you know getting the the um the vaccine. I got my booster yesterday. It was great. I'm I'm fine. I'm good. But uh, a lot of them are just going to have to come to it on their own. The more you try to convince, the farther, the more they're going to push away. So let's just show them the benefits that we provide and let them come back to the, you know, they'll come back to the table. So we're hoping to run this uh, right before Christmas, but that's always a product of me (laughs) getting this to my, my editor to put together. Uh, So any Christmas thoughts you'd like to share with the, uh, the listeners, both in Western North Carolina and wherever else they may be listening. Well, I mean, just, you know, Merry Christmas. Um, we celebrate, we also, my wife and kids are Jewish. So we celebrated Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah, joyous, uh, Kwanzaa that starts on the 26th. I'm anxious for that. You know, we just did a, uh, uh, an event with Crystal Colley at the People's Museum for commemorating Kwanzaa. It's been four towns, four local towns have commemorated it, made it official, uh, an official observance, and uh, excited about that. And uh, every other, you know, whatever <laughs> other, holiday. yep, everything that any any group of people that that, are, that is specific to them, they they celebrate around this time. Just enjoy. Um, Take a step back and just take a breath. Remember to breathe. That's what I try to tell people. Remember to breathe. You get excited. You get hyper-focused. You forget everything else around you. Just take a step back and look at things as a whole. I Things are not as bad as people are trying to, like a lot of people try to make them out, those alarmists. There's always going to be alarmists, and they're always going to be loud. They're going to be a small part. Just step back. Maybe turn the phone off. Stop reading the news. Turn off the TV for a day. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your surroundings. Just t- and just kind of reset. Take a step back and just get that perspective. Because we lose perspective, right? right? We put on those blinders and we're like, ah, everything's right in front of us, you know. And that's not the case. So, yeah, just take this opportunity, you know, just to just to gain, try to gain a new perspective. And do a little something nice for your neighbor, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Always do yeah. something nice. You should always yeah. be doing something yeah. nice for your neighbor. Yeah. That's how we work, right? Yeah, right. Whether it's a holiday or or not a holiday. Every day. Every day. Well, uh, Jay, tell, tell the listeners uh, where they can find your website and Twitter or whatever other social media you'd like to drive them to. And uh, Sure. Majority of my handles, except for Twitter, which is one I'd set up originally, uh, is Jay Carey for Congress. Okay, www.jcarryforcongress.com is my page. You can also link to all my my Instagram, my TikTok, and my uh, uh, Twitter. Twitter is jcarrync. Um, I am not a big social media person. I have actually, I didn't even have a Facebook when I got into this. I'd gotten rid of it because I just got so overwhelmed. But I've got it all going. You know, my TikTok is actually getting pretty pretty fun. I do lives, uh, you know, getting a decent following and stuff. It's 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 as long as you keep it lighthearted and you just don't take the the trolls seriously. It's it's a lot of fun, um, and, and I want people to remember that together, you know, we can rebuild this nation. Together, we can provide that opportunity for those ch- for our children to have a better education, a better tomorrow. That together we can build this economy. That together we can. 
And that's what I want to leave people with, that together, regardless of your, of your affiliation, your personal beliefs, that together we can overcome. Well, that's a good way to wrap it up, and that's a good objective for 2022, which will be an interesting year for all of us. Uh, wish you the best of luck. Look forward to talking again with you uh, sometime soon as the campaign progresses. And thank you so much for joining us. Jay Carey. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate the chance. All right, that's a wrap, folks. Thanks, as always, for listening. Next week, we'll be interviewing Democratic candidate Bo Hess and giving everyone a peek at what the new year might bring for the battle for NC-14. Have a safe, wonderful Christmas holiday, and Merry Christmas.